who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Good day, good people. My name is Brad King. You're watching, listening to the Downtown Riders Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker, and I have to tell you, I have been chomping at the bits to bring you today's episode because everybody I've told this book about has had this like, holy shit, how do I not know this? How have I not heard this story before? And uh, I'm going to have the author, Jessica DeLong, on. Her book is called Saved at the Seawall. And here's why the story is interesting. It is about... 800 civilians who were mariners, right? uh, Boaters, people with boats. And during 9-11, they rescued somewhere between 400,000 and 500,000 civilians from ground zero. And this is the story of not only that day, and it's told through uh, a variety of voices that's sort of moving through the day. But also it is a treatise on the sort of civilian boat group that exists in America. And if you follow the, any time a hurricane hits in the South, there's always the Navy. There's like the civilian Navy, the, all the boaters that go out and they're rescuing people. Um, and I always just sort of thought that was specific to that thing. And it turns out that's not. And I was a reporter on 9-11. I worked at Wired, but like every other news organization, we stopped doing what we were doing and started reporting about that. And as the days went by, we sort of came back to the technology part of things. But for two or three days, we were writing about 9-11. We had people on the ground out there. I had friends out there. I had friends flying out there. I have a whole bunch of friends that live there. I've never heard this story. And so when this came across my desk, like holy shit like i want to talk to to this person 
Um, and it turns out uh, it's not only a great book. I mean, I read that thing in one sitting. Uh, she's cool as shit. And I think you're really going to like today's episode. So uh, Jessica is a Brooklyn-based ASJA award-winning author, journalist, historian, ghostwriter, book collaborator, editor, writing coach. She sort of does all of the, I mean, if you're a writer these days, you sort of you do a lot of these things. Um, she does narrative and other nonfiction books, um, collaborating with people, doing things like memoir, trauma psychology, neuroscience, like all kind of stuff. She's taught uh, 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 writing with Voices from the War and the Sackett Street uh, Writers Workshop. Her first book, My River Chronicles, Rediscovering the Work That Built America, A Personal and Historical Journey, explores the value of hands-on work through memoir, history, and reportage. And I'll tell you, uh, a large part of what we talked about was the sort of class-based reason why we don't know this story and like why the maritime thing is not something that we talk about. And so there's this big um, class and gender is, is a big part of this book. And I bring that up because she is a U.S. Uh, she's a Coast Guard licensed uh, Marine engineer. She served uh, aboard the retired 1931 New York City fireboat John J. Harvey for 20 years. 11 of those as the chief. So she was not only writing this book, but was there and is familiar with this stuff and is not somebody that heard about this story, right? And so it's real, it was fascinating to talk with her because it's very rare that you find people that can translate stuff like that, right? And she didn't have to translate it because that is part of who she is. And the fact that she's also a writer, it just, the fucking book is so good. And it's fascinating to me that this is not a story that we know. Because when you read the book, you're going to shake your head. Though. You were literally just going to be shaking your head the whole time, wondering about that. Now, this isn't to say that it wasn't written anywhere, because she's a journalist. It was written about in other places. But there was so much that day, and and so much about first responders and rightfully so, right? And so much about the war that came after, just sort of everything. There's just so much, like, how do you encompass all of that? Um, because I've told some people about it and I've gotten to like, uh, oh, fucking media. And I'm like, no, 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 she's part of the media. Like people wrote about this story, but she gives it this laser focus where that day is told through this. Uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing. Before we get you to that, as you know, we got some business to do. Uh, our jam proper, the 60 minute show comes out every Wednesday. These, the video podcasts come out on Monday and Friday. A couple things you can do. I want you to go tell one or two friends about us. The, everybody's got the, you know, reader, nerdy friends like me. I want you to tell them about this podcast. First thing you can do to help us. Second thing, if you listen with Apple, leave us a written review or a starred review. And if you don't head over to our Facebook page at the writer's jam, click on that review button and leave us a review there. That is how we get found. You can head over to writersjam.com. If you're looking for a book to read, we got reviews. You can click on our bookshop link, buy any books from local and independent bookstores. You can check out the video podcast series. You can sign up for our monthly newsletter and you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Network because Molly and Nicole are growing the shit out of this thing. Just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes all kinds of bonus content, behind the scenes stuff from everybody across the network. It's amazing. You can do that. I think it's one $5. Just a little bit a month, a little bit a year, and you will really support what we're doing. 
I appreciate you taking some time. This one's a little bit longer than most. You're going to spend about 45 minutes with us today, but I promise you it is going to be worth every minute uh, because Jessica's amazing. So thank you for stopping by to spend some time with us. I hope that you are doing well and taking care of each other, taking care of the people around you. And I hope that you will sit back, put all that shit you're doing down, pay attention, check out my conversation with Jessica Dulong. And yes, we can, we can be very learned about the sort of trappings of our humanity, but that doesn't get us out of it. We're still stuck with humanness. Yeah, when I taught journalism, I actually made my kids read a book called um, The Invisible Gorilla, which is a series of videos. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's the, it's the it's great. There's literally a video. I don't want to ruin it, but like you watch this video and then they ask you a question and like 80% of people can't answer it. And then when you watch it again, you're like, that was right in the middle of the video. Like, how did I not see that? So it's the eight ways that your mind was sort of uh, biologically evolved to fool you. Um, right, right. Which, you I know, remember Museum of Science, they had this like presentation when I was a kid and it was something like they hold up a sentence and they they mix up the word or something and they lied, you know, a syllable yeah. is missing, but your brain just fills it in, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So just those examples are very telling. And yeah, we don't, it doesn't get us out of it to know it though. No. So I'm <laughs> going to ruin the video now. Literally there are kids passing a basketball and a guy in a gorilla suit walks past and they ask you like, what, like, there's a question, like, you know, what, what walked through? And you're like, I don't, what do you mean? What walked through? And then you watch it again. And you're like, how did I miss the gorilla? So I would tell my journalist kids, like yeah. you ask a cop, what's the worst way to figure out what happened at a scene and they'll tell you an eyewitness account yeah yes well I, cops are also not great witnesses for a lot of accounts too right but i just mean like if you're talking <laughs> yeah. to people yeah. in a traumatic situation what you saw is oftentimes a tunneled version of what happened yeah i don't know if you read dan barry's piece um it's really about the science around that um recently and it's about you know what it means that we walk around with this slogan of never forget, like never forget which part and right. which part and, and, and how we're so invested in the identity of knowing where we were when we heard the news. And they've done research that shows like huge percentage of people absolutely have reconstructed the narrative of where they were, yeah. like unbeknownst to them, you know, but they all swear it's the truth. So. Yeah, because memory is crazy. It is so crazy. And as soon as you talk to other people, you begin rewriting your memory and incorporating things that other people have said into yes. the narrative. Um, yes, yes. It's, it's insane, like, because we, you know, as journalists, we believe nonfiction is a thing. Right. And fiction right. is a thing. And you're like, bah. Yes. And, and I like to get it really messy because I do creative nonfiction. Right. You know what I mean? So I'm like riding that edge all the time. You know who um, the book that I really loved about that, that um, eyewitness accounts and who remembers what is, um, did you read David Carr's book, um, The Night of the Night of the Gun? No. I mean, I knew David before he passed away, but like, I've heard this story and like, this is the story. Yes. And then he goes and does reporting and it's like, well, that is not what I did at all. I had the gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I just, yeah, I, it's something actually at a certain point in reporting this book, I thought about 
taking it in a different direction and taking it to sort of the depth and fallibility of, of memory and like what that what meaning making was and then I realized that was a completely different book so someday yeah that book someday that's the, that's the 20th anniversary of this book you have a companion book <laughs> companion book so that means the 40th anniversary of the attacks yeah I mean it's publishing we have to tie it to something right like that's yeah, how it works so what makes you write like, how do you come across this story? Because I am amazed that this thing that was a massive maritime thing, and I was a journalist covering this, like, how, like how? How do you find this? How, like, how does nobody know this? Like, it, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, well, there's two very different answers. Um, <laughs> one, how I know it is because this is my community. I was a mariner. I worked aboard fireboat John J. Harvey, which was called back into service. It was a retired New York City fireboat from 1931. Oh, my God. Called back into service because the city needed its firefighting uh, capacity because sure. we pumped river water. So um, fireboats, both this retired boat that on a normal day would have no business being in an active fire, um, was down there working alongside um, the active duty fireboats and pumping the only water that was available on site for dates. That was the only way to fight fires was with Hudson River water. Wow. So, so that's how I come to the story is that it's a part of my community. Um, and I think the um, journalists absolutely, I mean, still to this day, there are so many people who have just not paid attention. This year has been a a watershed moment um, for whatever reason. I think a piece of it is that we're so desperate for um, more complicated truths about our past um, and so, so in need of hope in humanity and believing in each other and really just torn apart by all the divisiveness, right? So I think yeah. that's a piece of it. But there are class issues here, deep class issues as to why this did not you know, get the attention straight away. One big piece of it is that New York Harbor, basically New York City grew up around our waterways. That's, that's where the history starts um, of Europeans coming to this country and, um, and taking everything over. Um, and the, the, the realities of the, um, the realities of that history and the working waterfront had so many repercussions in the hours on that morning of September 11th, but it also had so many repercussions in terms of the story not getting told because we had this long legacy of turning our backs on the waterfront, denying that what happens in the port is so instrumental to our everyday. And it's, you know, it, we could take a whole show to unpack it, but um, it, it's really interesting to me, the collisions with history and why that's the case. When you say class, you mean because I'm assuming most of the people that work there are working class. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So absolutely. And um and my earlier book, My River Chronicles, rediscovering that work, the work that built America is actually about the rise and fall of respect for craftsmanship and hands-on work. Yeah. And so I chronicled this change in New York Harbor using Hudson River as the lens. So I watched this country, you know after the fact, examining the history, watch the progression of turning our backs on the river, yeah. the, the waterways in all of the port of New York, New Jersey, and uh, taking it for granted. And also just the, you know, the devaluing of, of any work that you might do that gets dirty. 
Yeah, I mean, like I've talked on, I'm from rural Appalachia. Like I've talked a lot, like uh, the, the transformation of community colleges from like two-year trade schools into feeders into the four-year education. I, I've long said like, this is one of the worst things that's happened because it devalued service and trade and somehow yes. taught that that wasn't an actual fulfilling knowledge, right? Like building things with your hand or whatever doesn't actually give you fulfillment um, and all that stuff. So I like, I feel that deeply. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And I was so excited to hear that that's, that's where you're coming from. Because yeah, I wrote, I've, I've written so much, I've spoken so much about the value of hands on work and how craftsmanship and skills trades, like we have a skills gap. Yeah. We have all these people, a whole bunch of people don't end up graduating college, right? Yeah. They end up yeah. in debt. Six years later, they have they don't have a degree, and instead they've hated the experience, and they would have learned so much better by you know learning CNC machining or yeah. any of these things that is super highly skilled and really important, crucial. Yeah. I mean, we're gonna take just a little left turn because I want to get back to this, but um, particularly for men, right? Like men are now graduating, you know, under four, I think under 48% of college graduates are men, and they have that experience. I've taught for 13 years. It, it is a, you both devalue knowledge when it is used as a weapon against you or you don't feel included in it, right? So you see the, in a patriarchal structure, you see the bad things that start to happen when that happens. But also there's an empathy that comes with learning, whether it's learning a skilled trade or whatever. Like if you're, if you're an apprentice, like you can learn empathy, not just through books, right? You can learn it through lots of different ways. And if you are shunned from this thing, so now you devalue education and you don't have a compassion, bad shit starts to happen. And yes. so I think that's really interesting that class plays such a big part of that story because, I mean, I rarely do research, but I was looking this up that 800, there were 800, how, like how many people, there are 150 vessels yeah, so at least it's it's hard because there was no official registry. Sure. One of the big remarkable things about the boat lift was that it was spontaneous. It was unplanned. It was not orchestrated top down by any means, not until, so the first response starts happening at 846, 847 after yeah. the plane hits. Yeah. And then the first call from the Coast Guard in an orchestrated way comes at 1045. Wow. So there's so much that has already gone on. It's this organic evolving thing. And you end up with at least 150 boats and at least 800 mariners involved in this ad hoc, spontaneous, hey, you know, let's just pull it together and make it work um, action. And it's and just- How many people did they move that day? So the, there are a lot of different figures out there and yeah. I did so much digging and the best figures, and I have it all sourced in my end notes, yeah. um, but the best figures are between 400,000 and 500,000 people. Right. And that's why it's so amazing to me. Yeah. Like that is, for that to just happen, as yeah. I was reading about this book and as I was sort of reading up on you, it feels very much like, is it connected? Like when the hurricanes hit down in the South, Right. Like right. all of a sudden you get anybody with a boat just starts doing stuff and it's not really coordinated. Like this feels right. like this is this weird part of America that just sort of happens. I mean, happens because obviously these communities are talking about this and preparing outside of traditional structures of what we think about as first responders. Well, so yes and no. So now I think there's, the, you know, the Cajun Navy and yeah, these that's what know. it's called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and the um, the miracle on the Hudson that happened later with the plane crashing into oh, the Hudson, yeah. or landed into the Hudson. That was Scully. Was that the Scully uh, plane? Yeah. 
Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but so yes, these things happen, but I'm, I, my argument is not that people are getting together and planning it privately and not telling anybody about it. It's that instead it arises up and there's a whole lot of really good um, disaster research out there. Um, and some of the disaster researchers I learned a lot from really taught me that if you look over and over again, because of the way our infrastructure is set up and our government is set up, almost always the first first responders are just regular everyday people. They're not people who have a special skill set to bring to disasters. That's almost always they're the ones first. And so they also find that over and over again, contrary to all the negative news that you and I do our best to stop perpetuating, but we are journalists, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, contrary to the stories that we hear that are all about all the awful things that we do to each other, what you see in history and yeah. documented is that people actually go way out of their way, yeah. go to great lengths to pull up whatever they have available and help each other. And that's actually the default setting. Yeah. Um, that's really what I look to highlight with this book is to tell that part of our history too, which is so important. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, as a, I was a trained teacher and when you do classroom management and this will come back together, they always say there's 10% of the kids that are going to learn whether you're there or not. 10% that have some kinds of disciplinary problems that, ex, you know, extend outside and the 80% in the middle are looking to see where you're spending your time and energy, right? Because that's where they will go. That is how you manage a classroom. And I've often thought about that in the media, right? Like it's very easy to find the two people that are yelling, but if yeah. there's 40 people who aren't yelling and doing good stuff, like, why is that not the thing? Right. Because everybody will move in that direction. Not that it's our job to move people in those directions, but it reflects a reality of what's actually going on. Well, it is our job to move in the direction of what's actually going on. That's what I mean. Right. Right. And so, right. so like I, and I think that a lot of times journalists, we, we build up this like false dichotomy, you know, with getting the other side of the story. But yeah, there the are other siderism. <laughs> yeah. There are yeah. just actual facts yeah. that exist, you know? Um, yes, definitely. Absolutely. How difficult, like as you were reporting this story, because I, you know, I've never done anything like this, but I've gone back and tried to recreate things from 30 years ago, particularly that aren't part of the official record. Like right. how difficult was it to find those stories? Because it's just amazing to me that 500,000 people got transported by 180 ships. And as a reporter covering 9-11, I never heard any of that. I know it's incredible. Um, and there was no, there's no like alumni association that you can like look up the databases directory, right? And so the stories were collected organically. Um, yeah. there, there were, there was um, a dear friend of mine who's no longer with us, Captain John Doswell. I believe he was the one who collected the first list of maritime participants. And so actually got a list of vessels that has since grown since his initial list. Um, and then, you know, one, one story leads to another, you know, and that's, that was really what happened as I just kept, oh, I would hear about this and, oh, this guy, I mean, the stories, the way that they came together as these constellations is just so fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I wrote a crafts piece about that, about how literally I had to look at these individual um, stories as, as like, be, like shots of light as little stars yeah. in a constellation that built the larger whole. Yeah. Um, but one that you'll never see, right? Like, I mean, I'm guessing a constellation that you're like, I think I got most of them, but you never really know if you got them all, or even if you got the most important ones. 
Right. Well, so what? And then then it brings a question. And actually, this I'm actually giving a lecture on this at a conference um, in Norway because it's it's just so interesting um, that what what determines what's most important, right? Is it the official yeah. narrative, or is it the individual? actions that were taken step by step day or hour after hour on this yeah. day by individuals everyday individuals as well as people with some special maritime skills but people across the board yeah just kept taking the next right step to help yeah. i mean it's just remarkable when you when you look at that as a mosaic and put it all together it's just it's beautiful it's really beautiful it's interesting that you you call it a mosaic because that really is what creative nonfiction is. At the end of the day, like when we were writing our book, which is about a totally different subject, but our subtitle was a story instead of the story. And we said in the introduction, like, look, you can look at these pieces in a lot of different ways. And so to imagine that we're telling you how this happened is to, to misunderstand how things happen because nobody had a fucking plan. Totally, which is why I, which is why I went with stories. Yeah, from, not the story of. Yeah, not the, you know. Um, and so, and, and that's, and that is so the way that real life is, right? It's so much more complicated, and also so much simpler than we often make it out because it's not actually a hierarchy of importance of experiences, right? Yeah. individuals living their lives and making their individual choices, and so that's yeah. really big thing I want to focus on yeah I mean it's why again this is another aside but like it's why conspiracy theories anytime I hear them I'm like I don't think you understand how things happen because there are people that try to do stuff most of that stuff falls apart almost immediately because people start doing what they want to do or they encounter other people that are like yeah I'm not doing that you know, like that's not no. And what is so striking and terrifying is if you um, if you read Garrett Graff's work and his his book, The Only Plane in the Sky, but he also wrote um, a piece, I think it was for The Atlantic just recently for the anniversary. And he talked about the absolutely just the total failure of, of the places in government that did have a plan. So the plan that was like all this money was spent all this time and no one did it. Like no one yeah. went to their safe spots. No one did like no one did it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the really fascinating parts from disaster researchers and why they were so interested in this is like, how did this happen? Like, how was it so successful? And when we think that planning is the way to get success, what do we do with this that was so unplanned? And that's actually, I argue, a big piece of the success because people didn't get ter territorial. They didn't say like, oh, I'm going to only, I'm going to handle this part. Oh, yeah. get out of my way. Like everybody really worked together and it was a very ad hoc system. Um, and, and it worked remarkably well yeah i mean it just reminds me of the mike tyson quote that you know everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face right like yeah. you're going into a boxing ring like here's what i'm gonna do you get hit and you're like i'm doing none of that i'm just hitting so right. the yeah. question that i have then is are those plans important say five hours later like is it the ad hoc stuff that it gets you to the point where people can go oh shit we actually now have a plan so there are a couple of yes and no questions. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's both. It's both. So one thing is that one resource that mariners were able to draw upon was this plan for opsail, which is like it's like a it's like a regatta. It's like a military like let's all show off the big boats kind of thing. Yeah. I should find a more respectful way to say that, but it's like, it's a show, it's a show. Yeah. And so there were all of these vessels docking in strange places, you know, that are just not the normal operations. And so there were, 
the harbor is complicated going back to the history. Yeah. Because you have obstructions, you have low water, you have all the vestiges of industry that are still there. So you can't just have any old boat go any old place. So the, some of the information from that plan was taken advantage of that day. Yeah. So it had been for a show, but here was a different kind of show we had to deal with. Yeah. But, um, and since then, it depends on who you ask. Some people will say there, um, there is absolutely insufficient planning and we would be in such trouble if something like this happened again. Yeah. And then ask other people and they're like, oh yeah, we do drills, you know, we do like, you know, live reenactments. So uh, no one's going to tell me on the inside, they're yeah. not going to tell me yeah. the, the real answer or what the plan is. But yeah. the mariners who I, who I speak with regularly who are out there on the water, they have deep concerns about what would happen now. Yeah, it's so it, that's the part that's so fascinating to me. Uh, I mean, all of it is right because that is we both have these narratives we of planning should matter. We have right. these sort of historical class issues that keep us from actually knowing stories. And I'm guessing that that also influences the plans that they have, right? Because well, we're only talking about this thing and not this other thing. So you're never totally completely planning with the whole spectrum of stuff, right? Right, right. And then there are the unknowns, because like you said, that first punch to the face, yeah. if, if it hits you in a way you weren't expecting, then, you know, the, all the other pieces of that plan are going to fall apart. Yeah. So and it always hits you the way you're not expecting, because you know how to not get hit in the ways you know how not to get hit. Right. Which is, <laughs> which is the staggering thing about how hard we got hit in this country on that morning. I mean, I have written about it because, again, like I was covering my my cousins are firefighters. So like that day was really like for everybody else. But like literally you're just I was supposed to be on a plane to New York. There was a conference that day. So like my friends were in the air like it was crazy. We were working out in the morning. We were out in California and the first plane hit. And I can't remember if it was before or after, but there had been a a pitcher, a New York a, a, a baseball player who had actually flown a small plane into a building, I think like a year or something before that. So the first plane hit and I was like, that's again. And it was yeah. the second one that I went and grabbed my colleagues and was like, I think we're at war. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're just like, I don't even know what's happening. So even as a reporter recalling that day, yeah, I, again, I have specific recollections of like, thinking about firefighters, like when the building came down, I, I said to everybody in the newsroom, every firefighter in New York is dead. Like that was the thing that came out of my mouth. Thinking about the harbor, thinking about, oh, wow, it's waterways. They're going to be evacuating people out of there would have never crossed my mind as a thing. So just right. that the storytelling component of it and the way we think about it, I just think is so, it just, it also says a lot about who we are. Right. Like in, 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 in the stories we value and in the ways that the general public would even think about a thing. Wander with us into a world of magic. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with and reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. We'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Absolutely true. And, you know, the power of story is is so important, such a thread through all of this, because it's not only um, what what drives decision making, right? It's what narrative you believe, what you hold on to, but also the storytelling piece that's really interesting to me, too, is the way that we manage trauma through stories that we tell. And actually the creation of narrative is a huge piece, a hugely important piece to how we can actually 
be the resilient creatures that we are. Yeah. And that narrative making process and how we understand other people in relationship to ourselves, yeah. all of that is, is, is so powerful in this context. It's really, it's, it's endless too. Yeah. I mean, I'm in trauma therapy and I've talked with, you know, as I interview writers, like we talk about trauma a lot in the ways in which it allows you to see things and allows you not to see things and yes. the things you block out because your body is just protecting you from those yeah. things. And again, like as writers and reporters, it, that is not a thing we talk about a lot, right? Like we, yeah. we sort of propose to the world that we are arbiters of what happened without yeah. explicitly talking about like, here's the reason I, again, I'm a working class kid. Like if anybody's going to know like where the class things are like, but my family are firefighters. So that was what I was thinking about. It never crossed my mind in that traumatic moment to think anything other than that. Absolutely. No, it's, it's so important. And, you know, I, I think I'm really seeing a, a, a shift in all of the culture in terms of recognizing trauma more, but specifically within journalism, yeah. I think there is a whole new energy and focus around understanding both how we can be better at engaging with people as sources when they've right. been to trauma, but also taking into account that this actually affects us because we are human. And, you know, you, you see the burnout levels um, and it's, it's really, really, crucial there, but there's really interesting stuff happening at the dart center. And, yeah. um, yeah, there's just, there's so much work to be done and there's so much interesting neuroscience. I next, next life, I'm absolutely going to be a neuroscientist so I can understand trauma better. Uh, yeah. Good luck with that. I feel like, <laughs> you know, like this is like, I, I, again, in therapy, they're like, I mean, we try to re reprocess stuff and like I do the EMDR things, but like yeah. I've yeah. told people, there was not that I, I, I worked at Wired. I worked, I covered technology. Like it wasn't like I was seeing things, but I got a lot of friends in the media and you know, when they're covering events, my friend, Jackie Spinner covered the, um, she wrote a book called uh, tell them I didn't cry. She was one of the embedded reporters in the first Iraq war. Like that shit has an impact on you. That is not discussed, right? Yeah. Like you come back and like, you still have to deal with what you saw. And yeah. I would think for people that covered 9-11, and even if you weren't covering it when it happened, going yeah. back and listening to those traumatic stories of what had to be sometimes horrific stuff, I mean, you have that becomes a part of your reality now. Yeah, and for me, it basically meant that, um, you know, there, there is no hierarchy of pain and suffering, and that's not what I mean to suggest, but <laughs> that it, it, there are, um, there's an adaptive response, which is to close doors behind you and sort yeah. of seal stuff away, and I have been immersed in this stuff for two decades, and I've done other stuff too, but, <laughs> you know, I, I have been revisiting these stories for that entire time, and that has absolutely taken a toll. Yeah. Uh, 100%, you know, I mean, and the fact that also, you know, it, that could be just as a journalist, but the fact is, is that it's connected to my own issues from being down there, you know, and so yeah. you can pile it. Yeah. And, you know, you did that. So it was like, you not only did it as a thing, so you probably felt those stories in a, in a way different way than I would feel them because that is literally part of the DNA of your life. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally, right. They talk yeah. about, you know, us breathing in the DNA of other people. Um, and I'm not sure where the science is of that, but um, at this point, but uh, the science you feel in your body, they'll catch up with how we feel about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, the fact that I, there were two, my two roles, I, I sort of see myself as a bridge in this because I felt a deep responsibility to history, to my maritime community, to, to, to document the story. And that 
was so much more important and overshadowed any um, reticence that I had to dig into this material sure. and protect myself. I mean, but it took a while to get there, I will be honest. But I'll, I'll tell you that um, the fact that I was down there meant that people who had experienced being down there could talk to me yeah. in a way um, that they maybe would have had trouble talking to somebody else. Yeah. And likewise, so that's like on the people who are evacuated side, but for the Mariners, they were also able to talk to me because yeah. they could just speak boat and I would follow them and they <laughs> wouldn't have to like be translating. Yeah. And then I could translate it for readers. Yeah. You know, they could just uh, and tell their story. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, we always say on the show, like writing isn't cathartic, right? Like uh, 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 it's not therapy. Therapy's therapy, you know, writing the story, but, I think that there is something about being seen and being able to tell your story that allows you to get to that therapy, right? There is like, so giving people, it's like writing obituaries. Like that's the first thing we had to do in journalism school. And it was because like, look, you have, people want to actually talk about those folks. What they don't want is for that stuff to be forgotten. If it's forgotten, then there was no point to it. And right. if there's a story to it, at least there was a point to it. And that, Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not any of that stuff, but that seems like a very powerful tool. So for you to be able to, to, to code switch between journalism, maritime, like all of that stuff allows people, you to, people to be seen from lots of different areas. That was my whole goal. And, yeah. to, and to really, that bridge piece is really important. And it's really important, especially now when we're so divided, when, when you know, I've written for CNN about, you know, the, the misconstruction of uh, insurrectionists as, uh, as rednecks and like how these, these simplified stereotype narratives yeah. are so dangerous and so yeah. divisive. And so being able to, to recognize the humanity in all the people and recognize the full range of human emotions and yeah. not divide people into heroes and everybody else, which is so, yeah. so dangerous. I really believe that yeah. that is dangerous for us. And um, also not the way things happen. Again, like nobody wakes up and is like, I'm going to be heroic. Like nobody, yeah. I'm sure that day, nobody wanted to be doing the shit that they were doing. They did it because well, that they're humans and they're like, that person is suffering. I can't live with myself if I don't do something. But I would argue that, um, yes, and I would say that people did desperately want to help. People all yeah. over desperately wanted to help. Yes. And so people in doing, in being able to, so many, so many mariners said over and over again that they were privileged to be yeah. able to have something to contribute. And so there, there is that wanting in a yeah. way. No, I, no, I guess that's what I meant. Like nobody yeah. said like, I'm going to be heroic. They are right. people and a thing happened and they're like, I can help. This is right. the thing I want to do. I yes. don't give a shit who you are. You're a person and right. I will not be able to also live with myself if I don't do what I know I can do. Like that's, I've been in some traumatic situations. Like that has been the thought I, that's gone through my head. Like, I don't want to yes. do this, but like that sort of comes later. Like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like that was really dangerous, but yeah. Yeah. In the moment you're like, I can do this and there's nobody else here. So we're going to do it. Yes. And I think for some people that, that after that, like retrospective looking at what actually <laughs> happened, I mean, it really, some people it didn't penetrate at all in the really? moment. It was, simple, it was simple. It was just have boat, can run boat, people in trouble, get them off the Real island. Travel. I mean, people begging 10 deep along the seawall, begging for help. Jesus Christ. And people didn't, you know, a lot of Mariners didn't even have that, like, oh, I'm gonna, I'd rather be, but instead I will. Like, there was no, yeah, 
it, that that whole system was short circuited, and instead <laughs> they were all focused on helping and yeah. just because this is just what humans do. You yeah. know, we use what we have to help each other. That's actually what we do more often than not. It's when other things get in the way that we yeah. get into. You know. Yeah. Well, this I. I say this because I read books all the time and like I read the books of everybody on the show. I fucking cannot wait to read this book because it sounds one. It's amazing to me that I, that I don't know about it. And it was such a massive operation that was just sort of done by people. Um, but two, as you said, like, I think we're at a point, I mean, we've left Afghanistan. Like we just had the, the 20th, like we're in a, we're, there's distance enough away from that the conversations some people were trying to have about this event and all of the things around it in America. Mm -hmm. I think we're now better equipped weirdly because of the pandemic, which allowed the Black Lives Matter and the sort of social justice movement yes. to happen, where there's more people and more conversation. Not everybody loves it, but that right. people that don't, like the people that don't love it, don't get to stop that conversation anymore. Like I, and so I think this is really a timely way to look at like, this is actually who we are. Like we may be this other thing, but this thing is actually who we are. 100%. And, and I think um, that it's really important that, that we remember that this is our history. There's so <laughs> much brutal history from the very first seconds of Europeans setting foot on yeah. this soil. That all needs to be contended with. Yeah. That is really important that there's this new reckoning among certain communities of people are sort of <laughs> recalibrating. This yeah. is really important. And it's also really important to remember this piece of who we are and who we can be. And we have that choice every single day. Right. We have that choice. And we very often, like very rarely, are we going to be called upon to drive our boat straight toward the unknown hell that's unfolding on Manhattan Island over and over again on the, the darkest day in American history. Very few of us are going to have to confront that. But Instead, what we have are these quotidian examples of we can make the right choice to help the person who's near us over and over again, stock yeah. the free fridge that I have in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, like over and over again, we have these small choices to do the right thing by each other. And yeah. that spreads, that's contagious more than the Delta variant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like anytime I talk to writers, young writers, I always tell them like life isn't the big stuff. The big stuff is easy to do. Like, not that that was easy, but like the big stuff you see coming, it's the little shit that you will forget about that you won't pay attention to. And suddenly you'll find out you're not the person you want to be. And so when you're writing, you look for those little things, because those are the things that add up to what your life is. Um, and I think that this is a really good, like, obviously this was a big, huge thing, but I'm guessing their story. So they're all going to be individual moments in time that were a series of little moments that happened in a big event. And those little moments in that big event is what I am really excited to read about because that literally is the story of people. I'm so excited to hear what you think um, because that's exactly how I approached it was these tiny little droplets of color that, that over, you know, pointless painting basically. And then you step back and then you can see the image. That's exactly how I approached the narrative structure on this. So I'm yeah. really to see what you think you'd have to like there's no other way you could write that like no, no. i just got done watching come from away with my friend and like and so anyway like not for research but like it was one of those like oh shit like when you when you read about how that story was constructed it's the same way right like they literally went and interviewed all these people and just found their stories and like workshop them and put them together to try to honor those things to create a mosaic of obviously that is theater so it's a little bit more creative than what happened but like 
it's those i mean it's a goofy story put on by basically a regional canadian theater that ends up on broadway i don't know if you've seen it but like i literally was like weeping uncontrollably because it's those tiny moments that just make that make us right that make us Yes. And if you haven't seen it yet, Spike Lee's documentary, um, New York City Epicenters, um, it's, it, it's, it's eight chapters. I mean, it's, it's so incredible and, it, and it's constructed in a similar way of just like episodic, like little snippets of story that pull together and it's, it's just masterfully done. It's really a beautiful, beautiful piece. And, and he, he read my book and that's how we learned about the boat lift. And chapter six is all about the boat lift. Oh, well, I'm going to have to read your book and then go see that. I haven't seen it. It's been on my list of things to do, but like when 9-11 I mean, happened, I was, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, when it was 9-11, I'm like, I don't know if I need to be, I need to get some distance from this before I'd like dig back into yes. that trauma. Well, listen, this has just been delightful. I cannot wait to read the book, uh, Saved at the Seawall, out in stores now, available yeah. everywhere. Absolutely, yes. By Indie. Bye, Indy. Yeah, I always tell bookshop is where we send people like. Excellent. Uh, yeah, yeah, because we got to support our local bookstores because that's where all the stories exist. <laughs> yes, yes. And we need we need these folks. We need those book recommendations and keep them. Yeah. Excellent. And Thank I'm you. jealous of I'm jealous of your library. Like oh, I got more, but yours is way nicer. Than mine. <laughs> well, I, I just I, I I was away from my books for a few months earlier, uh, I guess last year in the midst of everything. And uh, I couldn't even tell you what it was like to finally come home and be surrounded by them all the time. <laughs> yeah. the, the library in my room uh, in the, is my favorite place to be in the house. <laughs> yeah. yes. I, I well, hear you. you have a great day. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. And uh, really, thank you for doing this story. And uh, I hope that you're taking care of yourself after. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, so keep me posted. I will. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Y'all, I do not go hillbilly very often on this show, uh, but that is what Keith Jackson used to call a good old good one. Um, that was Jessica Dulong. Her book, Saved at the Seawall, is out right now. We recorded this a couple weeks ago. I've done read the book, wrote reviews, told everybody about it. I told you at the top of the show, I, I could not wait for this one to come out and re-listening to it again. It's, it's I'm just blown away and floored. And I hope that all of you go out and, and get the book. And I told you a little bit about what was at the top of the show, but the other thing that I meant to say, and we talked about it on the program, is that it's not only about 9-11, but and she said that she really wanted the book to be about it. And I've read the book and I can tell you the book is really about it. Is the capacity for humans to do good in the face of bad. And we're at this inflection point in our country. Where it's sort of unclear how we're going to move forward through this. And I don't want to be dire, but. You know, it's an inflection point. We get to make a choice where we go next. And. The book is such a stark reminder of, you know, living through that. And again, being a reporter and, and, and I was on the treadmill when the second plane hit and, you know, dragged a colleague out of a class down to work it was like, we're at war. And I remember the next week, I remember the next month, how that felt. And this book is just such a reminder of what we can do when we find a way past the bullshit 
that's here keeping us apart. I don't mean that we agree on everything. And I don't mean that everybody that we forgive people the shit that they do. But we have the ability to put things aside. And I think most of us want to do that. I don't think most of us want to be at war with each other. And so I think this book is, it's really good. It's a, it's, it's just a great story. It's a amazing series of stories and it's a good reminder about who we should be before we get out of here. A couple of reminders, two things I ask you to do at the top of the show, go tell your friends about us, find those readery friends of yours, those literary friends, people that always got their nose in a book, tell them about this program. Leave us a review. If you're doing it at Apple Podcasts, leave us a star and a review. Otherwise, go to the Writer's Jam. As soon as you're done listening to this at Facebook, go to the Writer's Jam, click on that review button, and leave us a review. Don't forget to check out all the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Nicole and Molly are growing the shit out of this thing. The flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast is hosted by Molly McLear. It's fantastic. Um, it's one of my guilty pleasures. Don't forget that our video podcasts come out every Monday and Friday on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. You can also catch the audio wherever you listen to the Downtown Writers Jam. You can also catch it at thewritersjam.com. Our primary show, the 60-minute long-form jam, is out on Wednesdays. And the surest way not to miss anything, wherever you listen to podcasts, just subscribe to us. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm out there messing around on Twitter all the time. So come on over and see us. And until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey, Jenny, have you um, ever heard of a vampire slayer? Do you mean the one girl in all the world with the strength and skill to fight the vampires, demons, and forces of darkness? I do. Oh, yeah, I've heard of her. Cool. My name is Jenny Owen Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together, we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Never seen Buffy before? We will protect you. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? <laughs> Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. So if you've never watched Buffy or if you're about to watch the series for the 14th time, come over and join us. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at BufferingCast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.